0: Well, good morning, everyone. We are at week four of a series entitled, I've got to look at it myself. <laughs> One Another Soul Care in the Body of Christ. We already, already had the, uh, brothers talk about this morning, which was really, really good, about how. Uh, Those who are called in ministry and elders and gifted at teaching prepare the body for the work of the ministry. We are the ones who primarily uh, have the calling, the duty, the light of uh, giving soul care in the body of Christ. We do that. Formally, as we sing about our Lord and Savior with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we do it in sharing. We do it uh, one-anothering when each one of us finds ourselves in a situation of temptation, of sin, or suffering, and uh, that's what we're called to do. So, just a quick, quick review, not much of a review in any way today. Week one, we looked at the duty and delight of one-anothering, and I hope you remember some of those things there. Number one thing to take away is Jesus is our motive and model. If you remember nothing, remember that. There was other things said, but if you forget anything, don't forget that. Week two, we looked at six characteristics. And I promise you there would be no test. But I hope you remember some of those. I'm going to highlight just one. And that is in Romans chapter 12 and 14 and that whole section in there. We have, especially in chapter 14, we have two words used, and it's used all the way through the Bible. One is parakaleo, that you're called to come alongside, to draw near people. And basically that word is used and translated as comfort, encourage, and treat. And the settings are when people are suffering and they're they're, they're having a hard time and you come alongside of those. The other word is, anybody know the word? Yes, and that that word has a broad range from very, very mild admonish, warn, correct, reprove, and rebuke. You see how the the seriousness moves along in that word? And when you look at the text that that word is used in, it's usually in the context of sinning. The, The person's kind of slipping, and they need rescue. And they need an urgent brother and sister to come alongside. So you get those two views there. Uh, those two views, <laughs> two, two focus uh, areas or characteristics of one another counseling. Okay, well then, okay, what do we find next? Well, week three, last week, we asked the question, why do people do what, we, what they do? Um, you know, number one, Adam says, oh, it's Eve. Uh, which, by the way, God, you gave me. So, uh, Adam, Adam, in the sec- secular psychiatric world today, not everybody, but 90% of them blame uh, uh, your, your environment. You're passive, which means you're a blank slate, you're not morally responsible, and all that. We could go into that at great length, but we won't. Jesus says it's the heart, out of the overflow of the heart. So, we looked at that. And why is that important? Because you have to understand and be convinced that the heart is the core. And you have to be consider what factors in the heart, Two, What you delight in, what you treasure, what you trust and believe. And the two are kind of intertwined like that. You know, you can't simply dissect the heart. But Hebrews 4 says that the thoughts and intents of the heart. So you see in James 1 when he says what's well, temptation, you see something and you're enticed. But you're also deceived and the two go together. If a person is enticed to do a sin, like adultery, but knows he'll, he or she will be caught, they won't do it. If they believe it's perfectly good to do, but have no opportunity, it doesn't happen either. Okay, the two go together. You have to be convinced of those. And we spent a good bit of time last week with two illustrations. I trust you like them. It seemed to go over well. The first one was the cop illustration with the blows. We had water on the floor. Hey, it's dry. That's good. <laughs> we call that water anger. And we had another cup, which is Jesus' heart. And when the blows came, there was fruit. And Jesus is out to make your heart like his heart. So sometimes, of course, let's face it, sometimes gracious things come out of our mouth, Christ-like, and sometimes they don't. One anothering is to move your heart to be like Jesus' heart. Now, it doesn't mean that your circumstances are nothing, But as we were talking about the blows and the pressure on the cup, okay, uh, the blows and pressure only occasioned something to come out of the cup. They didn't determine what came out. So you want to change the cup. Change is by grace through Jesus Christ in the setting of a new environment of the Word, the Church, and the Spirit. And so what we have there in those two illustrations... The two other illustrations, the other one was Lassie, remember? And the drunk driver come. We won't repeat that one, but a lot of people seem to like that one. That reinforced the cup illustration, but also added the understanding that it was the treasure level of the person involved with Lassie, their dog, and their view of the universe and justice. Do you understand that? It was a simple illustration to say that the, the, the stressors are not nothing but they don't determine what comes out of the heart nor the intensity of it. Because remember, we went through four examples to illustrate what what, uh, Paul Tripp said in his book on suffering, that everybody can have exactly the same stress and land all over the map. And the difference is because what's in the heart. So to convince you of that, we're going to move on now to our model of actual biblical change. It's built on the foundation of understanding that the heart in the setting of temptation, is the core that we have to look at. Now some of you uh, may be interested, because we got uh, one question from the floor last week, and then another one during the discussion. Uh, here of, you want to understand brain chemistry? Uh, I said one thing last week. The body can make you miserable. Satan can make you miserable. And the world, especially if you watch anything on social media today, it makes Christians miserable too. It can make you miserable, but it cannot make you sin. So if you want to think through a little bit of the body chemistry and dopamine and serotonin and all that kind of stuff, we have a big pharmacy in my car. No, 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 forget it. it. But this book will help you kind of work through this a little bit. There's an extra copy. Thanks to the U.S. Postal Service. They delivered them yesterday. So uh, somebody here already got one. But if you'd like to read that, Ed Walsh is a super guy. He has a Ph.D. in neuropsych. He knows what he's talking about. But he believes the Bible is right. And so uh, very helpful, very readable book. If you'd like to borrow that, be happy to loan you that copy, First Come, First Serve. What is Don't push people over. Oh, I'm sorry. Blame it on the brain. Distinguishing Chemical Imbalances, Brain Disorders, and Disobedience is the subtitle. Uh, Ed Welsh, whom I had at Westminster Seminary, great, great guy, good teacher. So, um, well. That was, again, a little shorter than last week's review. So what are we doing today? Introducing the model for change. That's why I gave you the copy of that seven-page one if you read it in advance. But let's summarize. Two big points. To change, you need nothing less than a new heart. Jesus' rule desire in your heart. It's promised in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart, new spirit, I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You need heart surgery. And the only one that can rip out the stony, cold, evil, deceived, wicked, stone-cold heart of yours and rip it out of you is Jesus Christ. And he never does it without giving you his. So, you need a new heart. Secondly, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone's thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, with whom he, those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now remember that verse, because we'll come back to it in a moment. To change you need nothing less than a transformed mind, the mind of Christ. So to set... For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Do not be conformed to the world. Now remember, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? All three are talked about multiple times in First John. That was the subject of the last series that we heard. All the way through, it would be worthwhile to look at the references to the world, the flesh, and the devil in First John. Here we have here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing that you might discern the will of God. Our summary then was human beings do what they do because, and feel what they feel because they want what they want and, oh, did I get that quote wrong? Well, because they feel what they, they want what they want and believe what they believe. I think I got that quote wrong. I'm sorry there. Okay, if you didn't get the okay response, that was your line, and you blew it. Okay, oh, okay, you say, I need a new heart, and a renewed mind, But I'm going to some pressures in my environment, nothing. No, the Lord is your environment. We live and move and have our being in him. Hebrews 11 says they were conscious of God. That's that great cloud of witnesses. Wrapped up in one phrase, they were conscious of God. They have a God consciousness. We live and move and have our being in him. You wake, your mind goes to him. He gives you a new environment, the spirit, the church, the word. And what does he do with the others? Well, certainly there's a promise that there will be a new heavens and new earth, so new world, a new resurrected body. Amen. Well, I'm looking forward to that. You, know, you get past 70, you feel it every day. There's some, some here that are over 70. There's a few of you, I know, I know. you. I'm speaking just to you now, but I feel... Okay, um, and the devil won't be one day banished forever. Amen? Amen? Okay, but God's love and wisdom is to have those there, he will conquer them, and he will transform them into that which transforms you into the image of his son. Therefore, Christians don't seek suffering and trials, but we don't run away from them. Why? Because God promises to be present, active, and up to something good in all trials. Satan may tempt you, but in that context, God tries you to purify and strengthen our faith and make you like the object that He loves most in the universe, which is His Son. So, I sent, uh, I put a, a video up on the screen last week. Uh, uh, Excuse me, yesterday morning. And good number of you saw that. Did you see the Piper video? How many saw that? I know, a good number of hands. We're going to show it here. It's just three minutes. And, uh, okay, here we go. This question reads,
1: chronic illness, difficult marriages, losing a child. Doesn't God want me to be happy? God definitely wants you to be happy. Long term infinitely and deeply now in and through those circumstances. Um, Romans 8. Um, What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not with him freely give us all things? That's, That's saying that since God paid the infinite price of his Son for you, will he not then surely carry through in providing everything you need? And then it goes on to say, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness? I mean, these are hard things. Nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, we are being killed all day long. So you got persecution and, and murder of Christians. And then he says, no. In, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, what I think more than conquerors means for your happiness is that a conqueror has his enemies lying subdued at his feet. So you got distress, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, persecution. There they are. Conquered at my feet. More than conquerors mean they're not just at my feet. They are serving me. They're not just in chains, in prison. They are serving me. My persecution, my famine, my nakedness, my loss, as painful, as tearful as they are, are my servants. God works them all. Together for my good now that good that he works even through them is the foundation of my happiness it isn't the circumstances there's plenty of tears I mean Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief Paul says sorrowful yet always rejoicing I think Paul's always crying and always happy I mean how can he not be crying he was so beat up His back must have looked like a hunk of jelly most of the time because he had these five times 39 lashes beat over his back and then healed in all kinds of gnarly ways. So this man lived with a thorn in his flesh, probably in his back, in his eyes, in his mind. And he had enemies all around him. And he said, Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, Rejoice. So yes, God wants you happy. But he, he, he doesn't do it with circumstance. He does it with himself. He does it with the gospel. And he does it even through circumstances. This is a call for faith. Huge faith that God is good. God is for us. God is using all these things for our deep happiness now and our perfect, unsullied happiness forever in the age to come.
0: Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm glad to see the number of those who watched it in advance. But there's some wonderful lines here. You're the ground the substance and the foundation of your current joy and happiness is that God is good and does good, Okay, if not in the circumstance. Um, Not always mentioned, but in that entire chapter you have the devil, 833 implied, because he's the one who charges us. Um, The flesh, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, bondage to corruption, verse 21, which is the decaying body, which would have I'm talking about like anybody over 49 knows that. See, I'll forget the 70 part now. The world, persecution, condemnation, do you see all of that? But in those things, he, we are more than conquerors. So I, I thought the key takeaway from there is how the Lord uses them and what he explains is, I think it's probably the best way to understand more than conquerors, that they serve you. Our deep contentedness is not the absence of pain or sorrow. Our deep contentedness is a presence and sustaining and empowering peace and joy, which can only come from him. So, I want to not talk a lot about the world's view of stress, but there is stress, and basically we just use the word stress without a prefix. Now, you know what a prefix is. There's two prefixes, dis and you, and dis means bad, Okay, and you means louder? Good. good yes, like you and The good news, right? Eulogy saying something good about a person at their funeral. Okay, distress and use stress. Now we just shortened it to stress. But stress isn't really a neutral word. And so medical people will do things like this. And then we'll do a chart like this one down here. Do you see this one? Now, this is stress going across the bottom, and this is benefit going up the left-hand side. So, even the medical world says, you know, stress is good for you, at least physically and, and emotionally and stuff like that. So as stress increases, well, the first part of the line is simply boredom, because you're hardly, you're just on and off. Sort of like the, my, my daughter's Prius, if I watch the thing, the engine's on, then it's off, then it's on, it's off. <laughs> Am I needed? No. Yes. No. no. Whatever. A <laughs> little, little boring. Bored, but when it gets kicked in, boy, you're doing good. The engine's efficient. Right? You, you got all that. So the green part on the line at the top is, well, hey, you're cooking with gas. Exercise is great physically and emotionally. And in the business world, people are really productive when they're at the top of that curve. Then it starts to get red line down here. So it starts being discomfort. Okay? So then it starts to hurt. And then you keep on going down that line because the stress is increasing and it starts to harm you physically, emotionally. Okay? Wow. The second word here was distress in Romans chapter 8. Distress. The Greek word literally means to be squeezed into a narrow place. Isn't it amazing we talk about being between a rock and a hard place? Kind of a biblical idea, right? That's what stress is. Jesus here, God is promising that it will hurt. And it may harm your body. But he can and is able to transform Form your distresses into stresses that purify and strengthen your soul. Do you see that? He doesn't promise. You know, in Romans 8, verse 21, we are subject to the bondage to decay. You feel that. And the Bible talks over and over again about the, our inward body, you know, being strengthened with our outward body being wasting away. So that's the idea there. Let's put a little color to it. This is what the Lord spiritually intends. Okay? Like that. To make you like Jesus. Okay? Will it hurt? Yes. Will it harm you? Maybe your body, but not your soul. So God intends... And able to transform your distresses into stresses And then transform you into the image of Christ. Not simply to survive, but to thrive spiritually. All things work to conform you to the image of his son. Um, Yeah? I think something important to note, too, is it is the Lord who is doing these things to you. You're not doing them to yourself, which is really, really not God. Although some people really believe that if they hurt themselves, then that will... Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Right. The reverse is not true. You don't hurt yourself, and whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah. We could give a lot of stories about that. Um, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'll speak one thing here. Uh, when we get all done, the second last week or whatever, we're going to be around the curve and and talking about how we help each one one another in the spiritual disciplines. And part of the spiritual disciplines, when they're twisted and wrong, is that we find grace in the discipline and not in the mean. The the grace that we're Okay. We find the, the, the value in the physical discipline and not in the grace that it brings to you through the Spirit. So, for example, Martin Luther had to get out of this idea that, oh, the winter's here. I think I'll sleep on a plank without a blanket. That will do good for my soul. Okay, that The, the efficacy of the value is in the physical pain. No, the Lord may bring you into physical pain, uh, the, Paul's, thorn in his flesh. But it was the grace sufficient that worked in that setting to keep his pride down and make him like Christ. Did you see that? So if you get this twisted, you'll say, bring on the pain. So no, we don't seek it, but we don't run from it either. So um, a couple of uh, verses here, which are probably worth reading real quick. Uh, The first one is, but we have the treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted, but not crushed; perplexed, not driven to despair; persecuted, but not forsaken; struck down, but not destroyed. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For so this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are internal. Paul writes to the the Corinthians that time is short. That's good. What does the promise that time is short will do to a Christian suffering? Number one, it's going to end. And number two, until then, God has a good purpose for it. Um, if you've ever read the essay by C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, which comes from this text here, suggests you to... It's a, a good read, great essay. No temptation has overtaken you, that it's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond our, your ability. But with the temptation also provide way of escape that you may be able to endure it? So. It's in exactly those settings that the Lord calls us to one another, each other reminding us of the goodness of God and his presence and his purpose in whatever we are going through. So we're going to look now then at the beginning of the three trees model. Now the three trees model, you have a little tiny picture there, and then when we're all done it, it's going to look like that. We'll get there by next week. And when I actually put on that on there, I thought, oh, well, my, you know, maybe you'll want a copy of that. So on the very last page of your handout, you actually have a full slide. So if you want to review during the week or know where we're going in the next week, you can look at my annotated one, which is that one there that you have a copy of. But we're actually going to walk our way through part of it to understand the biblical basis of it. And, uh, and go from there. There are two, actually three, a three texts in the, path and the, in the Bible for where uh, 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 Paul, uh, Tim Blaine and Paul Tripp uh, get this, this model from. What we'll do is look at those texts today, look at most of the components on that little graph, and we'll start with an example at the end of... Uh, of, of today. A very simple example of a little boy called Timothy and going to the swimming pool. And next week we're going to go through three major examples. As you go through examples, you'll plug in understanding the heart and Christ and his faithfulness for us in the setting. So don't sweat the details as we go through, get the big picture. One of the most wonderful things is going through example after example after example. We're going to go through four of them, all from the Bible except the first one, Timothy and the pool party, uh, today. Uh, And all of them kind of map out how you use this to understand the situation and what is the Lord doing and how to address the heart. So, let's jump into here. Three major texts that cover this. Number one is Psalm 1, 1 through 4. And I have it right here on the left. And it's the very, very first thing that the very first Psalm talks about. And it's one of the two major texts that talk about trees, heat, thorns, and fruit. So you've you got your basic understanding of the, the, the model here. So uh, here, David starts to talk about the blessedness. Of the Christian. So if you recall, last week I had the cup, okay? And the cup, the blows came. And what he's saying is he doesn't walk in the counsel, but the delight, that's desires, and his counsel and meditation, that's his counsel and thoughts, okay? um, That's what's inside, if you will, um, uh, in the heart. So when the uh, the heat comes, he's like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit. So when we push that cup, pressure that cup, you remember last week, the fruit came out. Here, David goes on next to talk about the wicked. So there's this contrast. It's very, very short. The next text says a lot more about the wicked. The wicked are not so they are like chaff, that the wind drives away. So that's what's in their heart. So the same blows come, you get fruit from this one, and you get chaff and anger and malice and regret and bitterness comes out of the heart, because it's what's in the heart. It's what they treasure what they trust. The other major text is Jeremiah 17:5 through9. And here Jeremiah starts the other way around. He starts with talking about the cursed, wicked man. Contrast with the blessed man. Same, same Hebrew word that Psalm 1 one starts with. But here he talks about the cursed man is the one who trusts in man, makes his flesh his strength, his heart turns away, and he's like a shrub in the desert that will not see any good come. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Pretty dismal picture, right? Blessed is man who trusts in the Lord. So you see the contrast of the trust? He is like a tree planted by water and sent us its roots by the stream. Now there's the stream again. And does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and he is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. So here we're just going to reverse. Here it is up here. That's the wicked man. Blows come thorns. Uh, Again, See the issue of delight and counsel, trust in the Lord, Uh, trust in the Lord, and fruit comes out of his heart. So again, we're back to the fact that these two texts talk about the heat, fruit tree, thorn tree, and one other thing, correct? And the other thing is... Let's just look at this for a moment here. Add a little bit more uh, information here. So the heat, the sun at the top, are, as I illustrated, the blows and pressure that come on the heart. When heat comes is what uh, Jeremiah said in uh, Jeremiah 17. When heat comes, circumstances of temptation. So we're going to flesh this out a little bit. in the Bible, there are basic different kinds of temptation that would be involved in the heat. Number one, trials of living in a fallen world. <coughs> Cancer. right? Bondage to decay. You're getting older. Remember <coughs> two weeks ago I said everybody's going to have Mississippis. What happened the day before? That Sunday. The EF4 <coughs> tornadoes. Right? We live in a fallen world. Secondly, we're sinned against. That can cause heat at the top. The third is consequences of your own sin. So, for example, the best example there is David and Bathsheba. So he sees this woman. So that's the opportunity for temptation. And that wasn't a thunderstorm or anything else. Like, he's enticed. He sees something. So he sins. Then she is... Oh, she's pregnant. Oh, oh, no. Okay, well, what do I do now? So he schemes again and sins again. Does that work? No. No, because Uriah comes back. And so every time he sins, it makes the heat worse, to which then he sins again. Do you you see that? So um, living in the consequences of sin. Blessings. So Gehazi in 2 Kings 5, he sees the gold that, uh, that is going to be taken back to, uh, by Naaman to, to Syria. I want that gold. Think of what I'm going to do with that gold. So he sees it, David and Bathsheba. So he sees something and entices him. So blessing can be uh, a source of temptation as well. So basically those four can be at the top. And what we do here, uh, this is uh, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp said, well... This, this consequence is, Galatians 6, don't, God's not mocked. You're going to reap what you sow. There's consequences to your sin. That's, that's in multiple texts of the Bible. Would you agree? So this consequence of sin, they thought, we're going to diagrammatically put that on the three trees graph, and they put uh, uh, an arrow for a bad feedback loop. Okay? You sin, and it's going to make things worse. The concomitant good thing is, when you obey God, it can, not always, lessen the heat. A soft anger turns away. Yeah, see, there's an example of it right there, and you might think of others there. Is that a promise that happens every time? No, but it's sweet when it happens. So we'll keep that in mind, because multiple of the counseling examples, and one another examples in the future, will hike back to both of those things there. So that's why they appear on the graph. Okay. The thorn. The thorn tree. Basically, again, circumstances don't cause the sin. They reveal the heart's desires. Romans 1, 24 and 25 is really instructive here. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. Now, doesn't that read right, right out of the news? today, right? You dishonor God, you dishonor your bodies. You dishonor God and rob him of worship, that's due do him, you ruin your relationships and it ruins you. God is not mocked, there are consequences. But yet he's so kind to give rain on the unjust as well as the just, and tornadoes on the unjust as well as the just. His majesty and glorious seed, Romans 1 says, so people are not without excuse. His blessings and his trials are meant for the unbeliever to draw him, draw him to himself. And then after you are a believer, he transforms those blessings and trials into that which makes you like Christ. But here they exchange the truth, truth, remember, belief, worldview, and worship and serve the creator creature rather than the creator. Um, So that's what's controlling his heart. On the other hand, the believer, delight in the Lord, trust in the Lord. New heart, how is he strengthened? By being rooted all the time, constantly, in the stream. So finally, we come... (coughs) the final tree. Because in Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17, that last tree is not there. But it is. Because they mention the stream. And Jesus finishes the story. Finishes the model. When he says, if anyone thirsts, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A believer's life is characterized by living water from the living Christ. It's great to be talking about these themes today on Easter, right? Um, Galatians 2:20: "I am crucified with Christ, and no longer live, but Christ lives in me." And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. The life of Christ in the believer is characterized as living water. That which purifies you comes out of your heart. That new one of flesh that he gives you overflows in grace and mercy. You just don't survive. You thrive. And that's the picture of what Jesus has for you. Well, there's a little bit more to talk about here. We have the two trees. A few more details. Number one, uh, to keep in mind, and if you look on your last page, you'll see that little arrows look to the thorns and to the fruit. And you'll find me basically talking or reading these articles or any of the other books, that the visible fruit or the visible thorns basically are words and actions. So think mouth, hands, and feet. Okay? when you sit down with somebody and say, hey, how you doing, oh, I'm miserable. Okay, so, well, why? And, and what's happening? Well, I snapped at my wife the other day, and I, I'm miserable with that. So you hear words and actions, and they bespeak or display or, or give evidence of what's inside, and that's the next thing. So we kind of like to throw one other thing on the, the, this graph, and that is the fruit of the Spirit is inward. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, meekness, self-control. Okay, They're inside. But in Galatians 5, you also have another list, and both lists are not exhaustive. Did you... That way? I think I missed that. Right, you did, right. Neither exhaustive. But the works of the flesh are on the other side. So you have fear, sinful fear, sinful anger, guilt, shame, regret, bitterness, malice. Oh, you can go down that list. And that list has some that are outward and inward. But you you see the idea what's going on here? And inside, underneath all of all of that, are what controls the heart. Now, we're going to talk about two ways of understanding what's going on in the heart. Number one, deep motivational drives or desires that rule the heart. And there's three big ones. Three big ones. I'm going to camp out on this just a minute here, but don't again sweat the details. It will be illustrated in every example we give from now. Two seven years from now. I mean, you know, whenever we get done here, okay? We're going to look at these three. Now, these really kind of emerge from multiple passages and examples of the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'll give you the best one, Jesus' temptation. How many were there? Three. And if you then understand what Jesus went through, you'll go like, that was in the garden, those three tests. Oh, yes, and in the desert, that's what Israel went through. Yes. And in the Christian life, these three things are tested to the max. Yes, and I forgot one. uh, uh, The wisdom books of the Old Testament, especially Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and uh, Job. Yeah, you know, they, they kind of camp out in each one of those. But the best one is to really understand Jesus' temptation. Three broad categories. We are not animals. We are not plants. We are made in the image of God. We are meant in this world to know and rejoice in God and glorify God in the comfort, security, and pleasure that we have in the world. So think body-oriented oriented, there. Even in the New Testament it says everything we have with food ought to be given with thanksgiving to God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Secondly is identity, your purpose. What is your status? Think of eyes. Who am I? Animals never vex with that question. you <laughs> see a lion? The food goes by and he's hungry. Who am I? I'm not really quite sure. We are made in the image of God, so eyes are important to us. Our eyes, who are we? Who am I? What is my value in my eyes? Other people's eyes. And then there's God's eyes. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs says, because if you fear man, you don't fear God. If you fear God, you won't fear man. And you also won't care what you think about yourself. Because you play for an audience of one only, ever if you're a Christian power and control is a little bit harder to understand, it's justice it's meaning, it's purpose so you get a psalm oh, for nothing I've kept my hands clean, look at the wicked why did I keep a good conscience why have I kept myself clean they're enjoying it, why should I not oh, I should listen to Job's wife curse God and die okay Okay, Ecclesiastes, I build all these things, then I die, and it goes to nobody, and it goes to rot. Why bother? What's the meaning in life? Death, outside of Christ, death can make you hate life. Not because you want to die, but because death makes life meaningless. It's futile. We read that passage this morning. If Jesus has not been raised, our faith is futile. Just give up. Three main things. We'll unpack them later. But if you really want to think about some good books, I'm only a little hesitant because we live in 2023 and people are going downhill. So don't think about Tim Keller and Russell Moore. I grieve for these two brothers because I think they're slipping badly. But both of these were written from 10, 15, 20 years ago and are excellent. Number one, Russell Moore, 20 years ago, this is his preaching from a church in Mobile, Alabama, where he unpacks Jesus' temptation. And he unpacks these three really well. And then he says how the world, flesh, and devil eat you up on each of these three things. And how Jesus and the gospel and his purposes are to make you like him in these things. Another one, uh, that's exegetical, great book, Counterfeit Gods by like Kim Keller. And he actually uses this kind of language. He writes. He says uh, in the book, these are really two power and control. So he says there's four. But when he gets to power and control, he writes one chapter. <laughs> so he's still got three. These they're two sides of the same coin. They do have a difference. Um, so he addresses them somewhat differently, but in the same book. Some of this uh, in the same chapter, but some of this will be worn out later. These are deep motivational drives, and these are God word, because you're made in the image of God. And all these things you were to find in reference to the God who is the creator and the only savior, always. Now, what you really do is you go, remember Romans 1 says, if you turn away from the living God, where, is you, where can you go? To created things. And you use good things for bad purposes. So we talk about created things. They can be people, experiences, things. It doesn't matter. They're created things in God's universe. And when you set your heart and place your hope on those things for comfort, for approval, for power, for meaning, for justice. You see? If you launch into those things, it will fail you. Because they can only be found in God's goodness, in God's holiness, and God's love. When you seek to find them in the world, it will be your object of worship, and they will fail you. Examples. best one is money. Money is a superficial idol. I love it. I need it. And if it's digital, I'll hate it, but I'll still use it. We have money, and it's never an end to itself. So imagine a couple arguing about money. That's not a sensible example. Nobody does that, right? No. Nobody ever... You do realize that on the list of marriage counseling is number one or number two. So they're arguing about money. And so we'll give an example two weeks from now where big bonus comes and the couple rejoices and thinks God for five minutes and then they fight. Okay? And both of them have... Money is a superficial idol, and they both have comfort, pleasure, and security. But the wife has this one. Put it in the bank, I'll feel happy in the bank. And the husband says, No, I'm going to go to Disney World because I've not had a vacation in 10 years and I work hard. You get it? So they fight. What is their problem? Money? No. No, money is not the problem. This is, okay? They have a worship disorder. If they're Christians, they're detached from the God who gave them the money to reveal their heart, and they're all messed up. So in that counseling example, the very last line of the very thing is, what will they do with the money? And I don't tell you, because that is not ultimately the point. Anyway, so what we have here, if you look at that big final graph, uh, a full-page handout you'll see two other things on the side. Now, why do I put them there? Because Tim Lane and Paul Tripp and all those other guys do. Okay? The, uh, I didn't bring them along. But right after they wrote this book, which is the basic three trees part, they immediately write a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And now God intends to redeem your relationship. So you see, when thorns come out of your mouth, fruit comes out of your mouth, God sees it, so it's first and foremost an issue with him, but it wrecks what? People. Relationships. So either you manipulate or fear or punish or avoid when people in your life stand in the way of your superficial idol. On the other hand, we are meant to love and build up. The next thing is when things get real, real bad, where do you run for refuge? Refuge is a big deal in the Bible. All the way through the Psalms, God love uh, The name of the Lord is like a strong tower. Safe is he that runs therein. All the way through the Psalms, you have a picture of refuge, and it's a castle or a tower. Uh, so I think last week we sang, a mighty fortress is our God, and when Luther wrote that, Gunpowder had already leveled many castles. So he added a phrase a bulwark never failing. I should show you a picture of Lucy and I when we were in Europe years ago. One castle in England, um, Dunstanburg Castle. So Lucy is a uh, little tiny red dot, she had a red coat on, little dot, this massive bulwark, and the back of the castle sheer sure cliffs down to the sea. And would you believe that that castle changed hands? Seven times in the War of Roses, and it's called gunpowder. It failed and failed and failed. So you can understand, Luther said, God is a bulwark never failing. The interesting thing is, so that's why I represent it as a castle, and we put two castles. Here, over here, you run for refuge. And when you go there, be it alcohol or TV or amusement or drugs or, or gambling, You think it's a safe place. And when you get inside this castle, you realize it's 100% dungeon. You get into this one over here, and it says, come here, you're safe here. And by the way, many of the Psalms start saying language like, pack your bags, move in. Dwell here. This is an escape from reality. That is reality. There you see reality. You don't escape from it. You get safety, real safety, but in the one who only can give you safety. So there's a lot about refuge on both sides. So I add those to the graph. So what we end up doing here, we'll look at those next week. How do you relate? How is your sin, your fruit, or your thorns affecting other people? Lastly, where do you run for refuge? Refuge. Now we're gonna have fun for five minutes. You ready? Just just relax. Just breathe in real good here. Okay? This is our first example. You're gonna have fun. I hope you have fun here. Number one, I'm gonna tell you the story about Timothy. It's a four-year-old boy. Uh I used to have a real story of <laughs> a real person here, but I had to change them all and in case that person ever found out that I was using their story, so finally I had to kind of invent people. So this is based on a true story. Change so that the guilty and the innocent remain anonymous here. <laughs> okay, uh, example number one, Timothy, a four-year-old boy. Um, his parents are Christians. His grandparents live with a wonderful pool uh, at their condo, and that morning, at breakfast, they parents thank God for the food, which they should do, thank God for the beautiful day, and thank the Lord for grandparents who invited them to swim in the pool. So they're all excited, they all said amen, including Timothy. So they finally drive all the way, and they get to the pool, and they dive in the pool, and then within about 10 minutes, yeah, Atlanta weather happens. <laughs> okay? So that's number one thing you run into here, and Atlanta's not mentioned in the scripture, but it should be in Romans 8. It's got to be there somewhere. Okay, so what happens here is Timothy's four. And he loves his parents and he loves to obey his parents. He loves the look on his parents' face, both mother and father, when he obeys them. Because he just loves that look and it makes him feel great. And it should. Well, anyway, all of a sudden he hears thunder. <laughs> okay? Jumps out of the pool, he runs right up to mommy and says, Mommy! I heard thunder, and you told me that if I ever heard thunder, I was to come and tell you. So here I am, and I'm telling you. The next moment, his whole countenance falls. Oh, okay, listen, I'll have to call your sister in, too, and you better sit here. We're going to move the table over underneath the shelter, and you're going to have to sit here for I don't know how long. Now, this is a four-year-old. He has no understanding of meteorological anything. (laughs) I gave this in India once, and he says, uh, what's going on in his heart? Fear. No, no, I wish there was fear of his parents and God and the storm for that matter. Okay, no fear involved. He has no clue the facts of reality behind the rule. He just knows that that's a rule, and his parents are happy, and so should he be. Right? Okay, you're going to have to sit there. Why am I being punished? Me? Why can't I go? Listen, i um, you can't go in. I'll have to explain it to you later, but I'm talking to Grandma and Grandpa here. Listen, you brought an activity bag. It's right there. You got a book and a toy. Okay? Get it out and get at it, little boy. Okay, so he does. He grabs the bag. He pulls out the toy. He pulls out the book. Plays with the toy. Throws it down. He doesn't put it back in the bag. He just throws it. Mother said, okay, listen, you have a book. You're only halfway through. Read it, okay? And we pull another book. Throws that down, too. And then his sister says, can I have the book? He says, no, it's mine.
1: <laughs> well, you're not using it. it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> well, he sits there moping for a while. Moping is a good word. Mommy, <laughs> can I tell you something? Uh, you paused with Grandma and Grandpa. Okay, um... <clears throat> I just think I heard thunder. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. You know how my, how my stomach is when it's like hungry? Well, it's just, I, can I go back in the pool now? Now, listen, all the adults present heard the thunder. <laughs> so we instantly understood what little Timmy was doing. Okay. Um, so he, yeah, later that day, He's going to get talked to by his mommy and daddy and disciplined, But let's just simply take three trees and take the simple example and unpack it. Okay? So what we're going to do here, I'm going to put this, here you go, on blank for a minute. And don't look at your page because you've got the answers on your page. It's small, but please don't look at it unless you really want to lie. Don't be like Timothy and cheat, okay? Uh, So what we're going to do here is say, okay, first and foremost, what is the heat? Now, what you want to think about here is like, I'm training you to think about how to talk in a one-anothering way to understand. Remember last week? Love, know, speak, do. So we're at the love and know. So you want to love them well, know them, and know the setting. What is in the setting of temptation that has to be there for the temptation to happen? I'll tell you one thing that's not there. Grandma and Grandpa are not there. They had nothing to do with it. They're nearly perfect in every way. (laughs) Okay, so here you go. What are you going to list there uh, for... What what are you going to list there for... uh, What do you have to have for the temptation to happen? Lists the created things or the setting. The desire. What? The desire. Oh well see that's down here. Okay. What is the setting of temptation? So Gehazi sees the gold. David sees the woman. Okay. Um, you, you see things. What is the setting that creates the temptation? The pool, yeah, absolutely. Without the pool, it doesn't happen. What's the other thing that had to happen for the temptation to happen? The storm, right? One more I have on my list, and as a little hint, when I told you it's grandparents isn't, who is? Parents. Yeah, the parents, specifically the mother. Okay. Uh, the story is only the mother was <laughs> present, and I'll just put rules. Okay. Those are those are the three things basically there. Now let's look at the thorn tree. Remember at the top, we call that words and actions. So how will you describe, from the story I told you, what are the actions, outward actions that kind of betray what's going on inside? The outward actions. I visually kind of did things here. Okay, what were they? He threw his book. And oh, yeah, threw the book. So through the book.
1: Discontent.
0: Yeah, we're going to get to that. That's what it speaks about. So that's out there. Because, again, these are visible, okay? Visible. And these are internal. He hollered at his uh-huh. Okay. his sisters. Right, so, yeah, yelled. Yeah, yeah, so angry. Well, yeah. yeah angry outburst. Yeah, outburst. Outburst. So. Snapping, Okay. So he threw the book, threw the toy as well. Okay, upper. What does his face look like? Mm. Next week we're going to look at an example. It's the first thing that Jesus said to these guys. Why is your face cast down? Right. So his face. Let throw that in there. Anything else that's visible and outward?
1: He did his arms.
0: Right. Well. You know, these are adult things, you know, you know, and rolling the thumbs and all that kind of stuff. But physical, fidgeting. Fidget, listen, parents know. You know, look at the kids, they're really happy, I can tell. Right, okay. So fidgeting, okay. What's internal? Somebody said already discontent. Well, we're going to think about this a little bit here. Well, number one, what are the other words? What's the most important word that came out of his mouth that was a thorn? Lying. Lying. Yes, why? I want you to think for a little bit as we're wrapping up here. A couple things here: Is confusion a sin? No. That he didn't understand meteorology, uh, five thousand million volt electricity in the sky—he doesn't understand that, right? Is that a sin? No. Um, is disappointment or is this simple sadness a sin? No. But ingratitude and anger are anger towards his mother, not voiced, anger towards his sister, voiced. Okay? Ingratitude is the vertical dimension. Why part of the story is so important is, what did he do at breakfast? He thanked God for the pool. If you sat down with him that moment said, would you thank God for the storm and the pool? No. Listen, ingratitude was a capital crime in Israel. And it is for us. Ingratitude. Romans 1, the first sin, when you turned away from God, they dishonored God as God and did not give thanks. Ingratitude is a sin. In the future, after the little tootle on the bottom later in that day, because that's (laughs) new correction, right? Um, You know, a a gospel conversation here will be talking about God more than mommy, daddy, and sister. Okay? And grandparents, too. You know, they important. <laughs> Anger. So the next thing on the chart is relational, bad relational actions. We didn't cover that because we we're going to do that next week. But basically, one word, manipulated. Ma- manipulating by moving towards the person and lying. Cool. Threats would come next. I'm not going to eat for five days. Okay? You, you got the idea? The sinfulness of the human heart. Okay, just just keep on rolling along the, along the way. So uh, does he run off to get drunk at the bar? No. <laughs> so, you know, we're not going to have a bad refuge. He's not going to be in an attic next week and stuff like that. So that's not there, but it's in different examples. Why it's on the model is not always because it's always present, but always something you want to keep in mind. To understand how a model works. And so what we're going to do in the examples in the future when Jesus is our modeler, in two examples next week, we're going to do three, Lord willing. The first two is Jesus. And they almost have all of these all present. And we go out to the left-hand side of, the, of counsel and bringing fruit out of the person's life. So last, and we end with this, superficial idol is one of these things up here. What was he casting his hope on for his contentedness and joy? One word, right? Pool. Correct? it's swimming. Now, of the three deep motivational drives, comfort, pleasure, security, approval or status, power and control, which one is involved here? Pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Specifically the, of the three in the first one, it's pleasure. Now, is it good to have pleasure with the swimming pool? Yeah, whether well, you eat or drink or swim in the pool, do all to the... <laughs> glory of God. So ultimately, in a gospel conversation with this little guy afterwards, and which is where you have to go, you talk about God more than sister and mom and dad and grandparents. You see that? You live life before the God who is. So, next week, Lord willing, we're going to do three examples, so come ready to have far more interaction because we're going to read text and we're going to unpack how Jesus uses three trees, and it just maps right on there, right from the text, and you'll go like, yeah, okay? I will learn the lesson from the very first week, counsel like Jesus, love like Jesus, know like Jesus, speak like Jesus, do like Jesus, okay? And you'll actually say, you know, this model is right. Not all the elements are not always applicable, but always something you should think about and ask, with good questions as you love one another in the body of Christ. Let me pray for you now. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, that we had this moment together uh, to join as a body. Lift out praise to you, who the, the one who uh, gave us his son, spared not his own son, and promised us with him to give us all things. You cannot love us more. And what a glorious promise is that you will not love us less, that you'll give us everything you need, because you are good, and you do good. So we lift up your name in praise now. Ask your blessings as we go this week. Bless your word, Lord, and bless our time and testimony with each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming Today's Church with New Testament Church Practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.